today begins a new section in Matthew for us. Today begins uh, one of the two longest parts in Scripture of where Jesus has spoke. Many refer to the section of text as Jesus' magnum opus. If you're like me and you don't exactly know what magnus opus means, this means a large and important work of art, music, or literature, especially the one that is regarded as the most important work of an artist or writer. It comes from the Latin word of great work, magnum opus. Now, obviously, Jesus, we wouldn't consider him to be an artist, right, necessarily. Uh, We wouldn't consider him to be a musician, but we would consider him to be the greatest teacher, greatest human that ever lived. Of course, he's the God-man, right, the perfect Adam. And so as this, I'm going to refer to this sermon as his magnum opus. Now, there's another section that's pretty long where he talks, which is in 23 through 25, this recorded scripture of of Jesus. If you have a special Bible, sometimes they'll record that section in red, right? Jesus' words are in red. The rest of the scripture is in black, which, side note, has always been weird to me. Because it's like, well, how come in the Old Testament God's word isn't red? That's less important for some reason? I don't know. Anyway. But they do that so that it can highlight for us. But where I'm going at with this is this is Jesus' one of his finest moments. As a follower of Christ, my guess is, and my assumption is, is that this section of Scripture should be vitally important to us. As you go through God's Word, if you want a relationship with Christ, if you want to know what Christ taught, what He thought, how His kingdom was supposed to run, we would go to chapter 5 through 7, these next three chapters of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so I want to say to you, to miss the point of this sermon, the sermon of Jesus, not my sermon, to miss the point of Jesus' sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is to miss the keystone of Jesus' teachings. This message is considered his magnus opus because of its forefront in his teaching ministry. It was the greatest sermon of all time and will remain the greatest sermon of all time forever. So today, I will not do it justice. It contains within it the famous Beatitudes, the model prayer, the golden rule. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount is so glorious that even non-Christians cannot argue with its magnificence. That's how wonderful this text is that we're going to look at for the next several weeks. I think that that's important to you. Are you hungry for the words of Jesus? Are you desirous to know your Savior more? Are you curious as to what the great physician is going to begin his ministry with and how he is going to describe what kingdom living looks like? How this is applied? How you and I as Christians, right? Christians, followers of Christ, how those who he called as fishers of men, this is going to be the first time that they are going to hear exactly what they have been called to and what, how God, how Jesus views this kingdom. I hope I have satiated your appetites sufficiently for what will simply today be the introduction 
So we are going to have a mile-high view, I hope, of the Sermon on the Mount. As we look over five through seven over these next weeks, we're going to dive deeper. But right now, I want to talk to you simply about these words of Jesus. So the big idea, what I hope that you understand is this. God teaches, through Christ, he's going to teach, an internal righteousness is what produces external acts of righteousness. That internal heart change is what it takes to be a member of the eternal kingdom. But before we get into this, as I know that you are hungry to do, let us pray. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for this text. We thank you that in your love for us, you tell us what it is you expect of us. And even more than that, you give us that which we need to fulfill that which you expect of us. God, as we all, I pray, who are here this morning or who are hearing this message, desire to follow closely to our Lord and King, Christ Jesus. Help us then as we look into the Sermon on the Mount, not only today, but over these next couple weeks, that you would help us to really digest it, that you would help us to focus upon it, that it would not just be going over text, but rather it would be a deepening of our understanding of what it means to have fellowship with you, that our hearts would be changed by it, that our minds would be renewed through it, that you would receive glory as our God and King, the glory to which you are due that as we read through kingdom living, that we would understand the depths of why you came and the glories to which you have called us to be. Give us a greater fellowship with your Son, Jesus Christ, and with one another. And we praise you for these words of Christ. It's in your name we pray, amen. So like I told you just a minute ago, these three chapters, five through seven, the next section is going to be where it's this large of a section is going to be 23 through 25 in Matthew. So it's, it's all in Matthew, five through seven, 23 through 25. And the interesting thing about this is it's kind of, it's going to kind of be a dichotomy. And I'll show you that as we move through what we're going to talk about today. But I know that this interests you. It should. It ought, brother or sister in Christ. If you are not hung, if you are hungry for nothing else, be hungry for the words of Christ. So as we look into this, I want to cover three things for you because we're going to take a sweeping view of this. So the first thing that I want to cover with you really is this: the context of this sermon. So remember, this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus's sermon in verse one in Matthew five, verse one. It says, "Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain." And when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. So here's the context of the sermon. Matthew begins his entire gospel account, the entire book of Matthew. Remember, so we've went through the first, I know we took some time out there for Easter and some other things that were going on, but as we go through this, he begins his entire gospel with attention to the sins of God's people. Remember, his name shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So he starts out with this assumption of the need of salvation. 
in this sermon, Jesus' teaching is going to be seen to have authority because he is authoritative, because he has authority. So at at the beginning of this, we're going to see that he is authoritative because he is God with man in Matthew, right? And then at the end, we're going to see that he has authority because the Father has given him all authority, Matthew 28, right? Go, therefore, because all authority has been given to me, and teach teach everyone what I've told you, Sermon on the Mount. So if you want to begin being discipled, or if you want to disciple others, this is one of the primary texts we ought to go to. So he begins with attention to God's people's sin and needing a Messiah. He ends with the Messiah's death. In where we've been so far, Matthew 1 has this genealogy which provides us a legal representation, Jesus' legal right to rule. That's what Matthew 1 was. Matthew 2, Jesus has come as the God-man that is clear in that section. Matthew 3 deals with repentance that is necessary for kingdom entry. Remember John the Baptist, Jesus being baptized, right? Repent and believe, needing to repent, and, and not the scribes or Pharisees that come down, who told you, you know, you brood of vipers, all that stuff. Matthew 4, Jesus is morally worthy to rule as he goes out into the wilderness, fulfills the exodus in the wilderness, is tempted like Israel was in the wilderness, yet surpasses those temptations. He, he does not sin while in the wilderness. So he is morally good, morally holy, morally righteous. And then as we... And I know it's been a while, that's why I'm reminding you. So as he came in, then he calls James and Peter and John. He says, you're fishermen, drop your nets, come and follow me. You remember? And then that's when we launched in what it means to be a follower. So that's the context of the sermon just in Matthew. But what about the context of the sermon over biblical history? Think about where we're at in Matthew. If you know Old Testament or biblical history, you know that since Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, right? There's like 400 some odd years of silence. Israel, the Jews, have been waiting for the Messiah. They've had no prophet in the land up until John the Baptist. Remember, that's why he asked them, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? You went to see a prophet. Of course you did, because you guys haven't seen a prophet for years and years and years. And so the context of the sermon in biblical history is Jesus is being ushered in as the long-awaited Messiah. He comes to fulfill Scripture. That's why over and over again, Matthew does a great job with saying, and that was to fill this, right? So he did this to fulfill this. Even in the first couple chapters, we've seen that. In accordance with this, or as the prophet said here, or as you have read, right? Jesus does this in his own preaching, in his own teaching, even in the Sermon on the Mount. It's interesting here, in the context of biblical history and in the context of Matthew kind of bleeding the two together, that you have Moses, the great arbiter of the law, who goes up on the mountain to receive the law, to bring it to the people, and you have Jesus, who goes up onto the mountain to discuss the law, to help them interpret and understand the law as it was rightly to be interpreted way back in the time of Moses, proving that he is the greater Moses. But not only is he the long-awaited Messiah, right, the Savior of the people, but he's also the long-awaited king. Remember King David? We just got done going through First and Second Samuel and this promise to David that there would be someone on the throne, the, the, the line of David throughout generations. And so we see here that he's ushering in this idea of these new people and this new kingdom as seen in texts like Jeremiah, right? 
And then lastly, and, and maybe most importantly to you, and thank you for putting up with my nerdosity over the text as we begin to unpack it, but the context of the sermon to you today in modern Christianity. Jesus has just called his disciples. These ragtag, random guys, of which all of us can relate. They're just general, everyday guys. Jesus calls his disciples, and then this is the start of his ministry. To which, then these men, after Jesus' ascension, right? After his resurrection, they're given the power of the Holy Spirit, and it is these same disciples that is the reason that you are here in this building today or that you are watching online. And that is true not only for this day, April 11th, but for any day that you come in and any day that you listen to this online. This is the start of his ministry. And so in Matthew 5 through 7, he's going to tell us exactly what the kingdom looks like. And then, like I said, conversely, Matthew 23 through 25, he's going to tell us about the end. And so this is why this matters for us in our context today. We're living in the middle of those two. If if you can think of it this way, we're living between, illustratively, right, between Matthew 5 through 7 and and then between Matthew 23, 25. Contextually, historically, Jesus has already come. He's already entered in the kingdom, but he hasn't come back yet. And so we have here in 5 through 7 the way in which we are supposed to dwell while waiting for 23 through 25 to be fulfilled from Christ. And in that process, we are told that we are supposed to be and make disciples. So while the exact location of the Sermon on the Mount is not certain, there is a site in Israel today that has become commemorated for more than 1,600 years. So they're pretty sure, okay, uh, where this has happened. It is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee between Capernaum and Gennesaret. The backdrop of Christ's message was a beautiful scenery of water and mountains. Matthew 5.1 says that he sat which would be as a traditional rabbi. He would sit and he would call his disciples to them and then he would teach and expound on Scripture. His message was absolutely unique to the hearers of his day. It was unique because he was speaking in a way that their scribes and their Pharisees and their rabbis couldn't. He was speaking in a way with authority and power and wisdom and understanding that surpassed anything anyone had ever heard. He makes it quite clear that he is not there to abolish the law of the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. He wasn't even there to give a new definition of what it meant to be righteous. He wanted the Jews, and he wants us to understand that God's standards have been holiness all along, since the beginning. Now here's an illustration of what the Jews practice this like. 
When I was growing up, we had a wood-burning stove in my, in my basement. So my parents have a, a house that they live in now. They've sold that house. They have this new house. In this new house, they also have a wood-burning stove. When Elise and I would come up from Kentucky, and even now, whenever there's a fire in the wood-burning stove, what do we say to our children? I bet you can guess. Don't touch the wood-burning stove, right? Why? Because it's hot, because you'll injure yourself. Now, to a small child, they do not touch the stove, not because they understand all of the consequences with that. They don't touch the stove simply because mom and dad have said, don't touch the stove. It is blind or rote obedience. It is the practice of, if you look at it in the Jewish context, it's the practice of religion. Obeying rules because they are rules. Checking boxes because they are boxes to be checked. It is not until our children are older and more mature, or even adults, that we understand the full ramifications and the reason by which we say, don't touch the stove. See, the Jews, and even some Christians today, believe and are under the perception that external compliance with the works of the law are sufficient to please God. And that is why you hear friends and family members say things like, I don't like religion. And I hope that your response is, I don't either. I don't like religion. I love Jesus, the God-man. And so before we judge these Jews who didn't understand this, I want to offer you the question, do we? Do you? Do I? Do we also find ourselves sometime in that business of checking boxes instead of living the kingdom lifestyle for the reasons why Jesus says? Which brings me to the next thing I want to discuss with you is really this, the content of the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus' content for all of this are the demands of righteousness exceeding that of religious leaders. That his religious demands are really righteous demands, is really heart change rather than box checking, which we find in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus understands about human nature that we are incapable of perfection. We, like the scribes and the Pharisees of that day, can be very religious. We can tithe, right, 10% of mint, dill, and cumin, and still miss the real part of the law. What this entire Sermon on the Mount is about, what I'm saying then, is this is not about your human efforts, It's about your hearts fueled by grace. That's why Jesus goes on later to say that he is the vine and we are the branches. These Pharisees, some preachers and teachers, some churches, teach and propagate that externally only compliance is what's required. These Pharisees claim that people could be righteous because of their actions. But this type of preaching from Pharisees or from churches 
ignores the heart. They would say things like, uh, their actions could be right while their hearts were corrupt. Meaning that even your pastor, the religious leaders of the day, can stand and preach while yet having sin in their lives that needs repenting of. And that you can sit in a pew every Sunday and hear a message and sing songs, and yet your heart is still not right with Christ. And so in this sermon, Jesus explains that true righteousness, God's righteousness, is the righteousness that's evident in his kingdom. That it would go beyond superficial externalities and into the internal righteousness that is required. This is nothing new. And yet they missed it, and so my fear is we do sometimes too. Deuteronomy 36 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And that was the requirement even of the law. The second part of this, then, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount for his main point, for the content of all of this is, for I tell you, unless your righteousness, and this is the whole point, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's how he refers to the scribes and Pharisees in chapter 23. Now remember, this is what I said. This is how kingdom leading, kingdom living is supposed to look. And at the end, destruction or judgment or the end of the age, those kind of things. So in 23, he talks to the scribes and Pharisees. And we can, since we're we're outside of the space and time that they're constrained by, we can hear that, that Jesus says, your righteousness has to exceed that of scribes and Pharisees. And then he tells us the problem, again, to the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and selfish indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He says here in the text that your righteousness must exceed that of these scribes and Pharisees. He is not talking about exceeding religion. He is talking about exceeding righteousness. And so over this Sermon on the Mount, he is going to touch on our attitudes When he deals with anger and greed or forgiveness, he is going to talk about our desires, about lust. He's going to talk about our ambitions and how we want things of the world or where we desire holiness and servanthood. He's going to talk about relationships as he deals with marriage, family, work, and other interpersonal relationships. This Sermon on the Mount is really the entire thing is about this. Jesus came to fulfill the law and prophets 
because you cannot. And if you are his disciple, he is then calling you to a righteousness that exceeds that of religion and moves to relationship. It has to go deeper than simply just a head knowledge of these truths of biblical thinking rather than to a biblical practice. You must exhibit real change. And so in these categories, to put it another way, we would say that there is the to-haves, the to-dos, or the to-bees. To have is this idea of amassing worldly goods. Prosperity gospel. You know, the prosperity gospel is as old as Job. Think about it. When everything happened to Job, his friends said, you lost all your stuff, Job, because you must have done something wrong. That's prosperity gospel. God will bless you if you're doing right. And so to have is amassing these worldly goods, worldly success. And it even creeps into churches, like we just talked about. But really, that to have, this amassing of worldly goods, it utterly fails where Jesus is talking about. It does not cover your spiritual need. It does not meet the scripture's texts. And it does not satisfy your soul. If you don't believe me, ask any billionaire you know what they really want more than anything in the world is to make their next billion i know some of you are like any billionaire i know (laughs) who do you know pastor john i don't know any billionaires (laughs) but if i did right because the world tells us that everything you want is just around that next bend right your car's garbage buy this one your soft drink isn't good enough this one brings excitement right Or, if it's not to have, then it's to do. Practicing good works. This is most often worldly religion. I was listening to a different sermon about a different topic, or it was an audio book. I don't know. I listened to a lot of stuff. And one of the things that they were talking about is every single other religion is a resume-building religion. What I mean by that, and what he meant by that, whoever that was that I was listening to, is this idea of as we we do these righteous things, as we practice religion, right? I bow to Mecca five times a day, right? Or I fast at certain times every year. Or I'll practice this ceremony at this time of year. I have these traditions. And as I do those things, it's one more thing I get to put on my resume because at the end when I stand before God, I will simply hand him the resume. And then I will also not only hand him the resume, but I'll look at the other poor, pathetic souls in line, and I will say, looks pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, look at the rest of them. Look at the things I've done on my resume. And so it's this to-do, worldly religions. If that is you, you are misunderstanding this message, and you've missed the sermon. Because Jesus tells us we cannot earn salvation. And this fails also because it does not cover our spiritual need. And so lastly, the way that Jesus says this is is it's not to have and it's not to do, it is simply to be. It's an old question too, right? To be or not to be. In fact, that is the question. 
Because the fact of the matter is, is you are either submissive and saved or you are practicing religion. This is the stress of this sermon. If you haven't got that already, that's also the stress of this sermon. In fact, Jesus says that we have to be before we can do or have. This is the heart and the core of Christianity as a whole. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that we are a new creation, that the old is gone, the new has come. This view is the only view that can succeed. Now let me end on this part by saying having and doing are not wrong. This is not a sermon against wealth. And if you are wealthy, then it's by God's grace. And I pray that you would understand that you are simply a steward of that and not deserving of it. And to do is right. Because if we are a son and daughter of Christ, how can we not seek to live the way Christ lived? But to be is the only thing that satisfies our souls completely. To be hidden in Christ. To be forgiven of our sins. To be a child of God. To be redeemed is the only thing that saves our souls. And so in conclusion, as we look at Matthew 5 through 7 over these next several weeks, In conclusion, there are either two options for us, life or death. Jesus will be very clear on this. In fact, Matthew 7, at the end of this sermon, he will say that he does not know everybody, but only those who do the things he is asking about. Matthew 7, 13 through 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So this whole sermon boils down to there are limited options. The options are either life or death. The options are either religion or relationship. He tells us not only are the options limited, but there is evidence of where you're at. (coughs) Excuse me. We know this is the fruit of the Spirit. You can find it in Galatians 5. He says, We will either trust in Christ and therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance, Or we will trust in ourselves and we will be practicing religion, which is simply your grandma's fruit bowl full of fake grapes. They look good, but try to eat them and they will kill you. And as we're also going to see, then there is also external and eternal consequences to this. That one day the storms will come. And that is the temporal storms that he's talking about, but also the eternal storms. The storms of life will come, and blessed is the man 
whose house is built on the rock. For the one who's built on the, stand, on the sand, when the storms come, will be utterly destroyed and washed away. But the one who built his house on the rock, the storms will come and rage and beat against that house, but it will stand. In response, this is from David Platt, one of my favorite uh, preachers. In response to Jesus' teaching, do you see an exceeding righteousness in your life? And what, he, what, he, what he's meaning there is, your righteousness, my righteousness, must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. So what he's asking here is, in your life, is it religion or is it righteousness? In response to Jesus' teaching, do you see an exceeding righteousness to your life? Do you have a new heart? If not, God's judgment now hangs over you. But the good news of the gospel is that it doesn't have to be that way. The good news is is that you can withstand the judgment of God so long as you are in Christ. And I would add to that, you can avoid the judgment of God so long as you are in Christ. You can, it can be as if there never was judgment for you if you are in Christ. Because in Christ, our wrath was taken. In Christ, the judgment was poured out. In Christ, he said on the cross, it is finished. Meaning that he has already been judged. And so I would say, place yourself today completely in Christ. Do not rest in yourself. Do not rest in religion. Do not rest in elegant Bible church. Rest wholly in the Savior. Because that is the gospel, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you. God, you have taught us that internal righteousness is what you desire and is what produces external righteousness. Jesus, we thank you that the purpose in your preaching on this sermon is to bring us to a more mature understanding of God's law and application of your grace. And we pray, Lord, as kingdom citizens, knowing that we must manifest this righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, that you would help us to do that. That we would be and do that by your power. Because we know that this righteousness only comes about when we are changed by your grace in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this sermon. Continue to prepare our hearts and minds as we go through it that you might be glorified as we seek to worship you. In your name we pray, amen.